Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Amen. You may be seated, but as you are, with Christmas being this week, we have a little present for you. So we have a few ladies that are going to walk through the aisles and pass out some gifts. So make sure to welcome that with open arms. We didn't bother wrapping them because, you know, you'd all leave paper everywhere, wouldn't you? I'm going to let them, as they pass that out, let me just underscore Christmas Eve. Uh, it's just, I really look forward to getting together with all of you and taking that night uh, as a special night where we remember that Jesus was born and we get to celebrate that together. And I know it's a weird thing to try to do. Uh, it's a new tradition still to us. We've only been doing it the last few years. But I want to encourage you to make it part of your Christmas Eve tradition as a family, to, to spend time in church Spend time worshiping Jesus who came for you and for me. Like, just decide, we're going to, as a family, make this part of what we do. And I know that might mean changing some things, but I'm not asking you to do it for me. I'm saying this is, Christmas Eve is a precious time. And it's a great time to invite other friends and family, people who don't normally come to church with you, just to be here and just witness the telling of the Christmas story and the reading of it. And we've got readings for kids and all those things going on. So, look forward to that. Sound good? All right. While they're finishing up, let me just, uh, this past week I was talking to a, another, a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he was a little discouraged, a little disappointed, because on the way home from church last week, he asked his wife, how did it go? What did you think of the sermon? And she said to him, well, you know, it's hard to say anything new about Christmas, and that made him feel so deflated, like he had just said the same old thing that they've heard over and over again. And as someone who repeats himself a lot, uh, I really appreciate what Peter writes here at the beginning, where he basically says, yes, I know I'm writing the same things to you. I'm writing reminders to you because I'm trying to stimulate you to a healthy way of thinking. And so this morning, as we go through all this, what we're trying to do is stimulate the way we think so that we're thinking clearly about life. So I hope you'll open up our app and follow along and take notes, watch on the screen or write on a notebook, and ask God, help me think clearly, right? Because think about all the times over the last, it's been about a decade since I became the lead pastor here. Think about all the times you've listened to me talk. It's a little overwhelming, isn't it? And then, like, for those of you who've been around even longer than that, for the 12 or 
13 years I was an associate pastor here. Those of you who were part of the youth group in the years where Pastor Jason and I were leading the youth group, think about all the times you've heard me talk and, and how many times you've heard me repeat myself and say the same things over and over and over again. Depresses me a little bit. <laughs> and at the same time, it's bound to happen, right? This is, you live life long enough on this earth, you're going to hear the same things over and over and over again. It makes me feel like life is kind of like waiting on hold on a phone call. You ever be, have you ever been on hold so long that you begin to memorize the message? You know, it's like, if you really wanted to hurry up and get your things done, you could just go to our website and stop bothering us by calling. Like you start to repeat back the messages that you hear because they just play over and over again. And at some point you've got it all memorized and some of you may have walked in here this morning or you might be watching this uh, at whatever point and you might feel like you're coming to Christmas and you've heard it all before and you've got it all memorized and you know what the story is. But I want to challenge you and encourage you, don't let that keep you from hearing what God wants to say to you here today, December 19th, 2021, you at this moment in your life today. Peter says that, he said, look, I know I've written these same things to you before, and some of them are things you've heard over and over again, he tells them, because you grew up in synagogue and you've heard these stories. And some of you, you've grown up in church, you've heard these stories. And he said, I know for thousands of years the prophets have talked about this. And I know it feels like after all that, nothing changes, nothing ever really becomes different. Your lives are still difficult for the people Peter's writing to. He's like, you're still in exile, I know. You're just waiting for something to change. And, and you're still sitting here this morning, we're still sitting here waiting, watching for something to change. It's some point for God to step in and, and transform all these things and we'll get to really witness new creation that we talk about so much. When is that going to happen? What is God waiting for? We've said this Christmas story is about waiting. It's about how the world witnessed the birth of the hope it had been waiting for but then still had to wait another 33 years or so before Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead to witness the power of that hope. And now we're still waiting and waiting and waiting because it's not all fully realized yet. Because hope born is not hope mature. Because hope planted is not the same as hope harvested. We're still waiting for the fullness of this hope that began with Jesus' birth. And waiting isn't easy. It wasn't easy for the people Peter wrote this to. They were literally, had been chased from their homes, literally lost their means of supporting their families and all that. They were pushed out of their communities. Their whole lives had been impacted by, because they were following Jesus. And they were waiting, okay, God, when are you going to make this right and vindicate us? And you're sitting here, we're all waiting too, and it's not easy. When will God put an end to this mess that is our world? When will God get you out of the situation you're in? What is he waiting for? Why isn't he just snap his fingers and change it all? What is God waiting for? And I think I see two answers in what Peter wrote here this morning. Go back with me to verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, he says, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take those mirrors and I want you to hold them up in your left hand. Right? I'm using my right, but so that way you know it's your left. Hold it up with the white part facing you. All right? Just put it in front of your face with the white part facing you. 
All right? Make your hand like a C in front of you. And then I want you to very slowly turn that mirror until you see just you. And there's your first answer. You. You can put those away. Don't play with them. He's waiting for you. Anyone sitting here and everyone listening to this, whenever you're listening to this and watching this, God is waiting for you. He is patient for you because he doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to fade into eternity without knowing him and the new life he has for you. He doesn't want you to walk into eternal destruction. He wants you to find this life he has for you and he's waiting for you to open your eyes, to turn around and recognize he's the only one who can give you that life. He is waiting for you. That's what he's waiting for. And look, we make a, a common mistake when if I tell you God's waiting for you, we often begin to think, oh, he's waiting for me to get my act together. No, don't, don't get this confused. That is not what God is waiting for, your, for you. That's what religion teaches us. Religion teaches us God's waiting for you, so you better get your act together. And here's the list of things you gotta do in order for God to accept you. He's waiting for you. Let's go. Let's go. Get it done. I read an article this week, actually it was like a website with posts from different people who had grown up Christian and walked away from faith, walked away from the church. And 99% of the people who walked away, at some point it boiled down to religion had been pushed on them, Christianity had been pushed on them as a way of controlling their behaviors. Instead of a relationship with a living God who wanted us not to walk into eternal death, but into life, who was waiting for us not to get our acts together, but to just turn. And look, the hope Jesus offers us is not this, you know, get your act together and he'll accept you. Pay attention to the things Jesus actually said and the emotion with which he actually said it. For example, there's one particular moment when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that when he gets there, they're going to arrest him, accuse him falsely, murder him on the cross, and he knows all that's going to happen. And as he's on the way, some people warn him and say, hey, King Herod is looking for you to kill you. And Jesus says, Tell him I'm not worried about him. What I'm going to do, he can't stop anyway, basically. And then listen to what he says. Listen to his heart as he looks at the city of Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the crown jewel, the place of God's people where they meet God and, and, and enter God's presence. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you always kill the prophets and you stone everyone I send to you. How often I have longed to gather you together the way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you weren't willing. Do you hear what he said? Do you hear what he didn't say? He didn't say, ah, oh, Jerusalem, you stink. I got to keep you at arm's length, wing's length, because you're not good enough. You need to get your act together and then come on. No, he says, I have longed to pull you in and, and shelter you and protect you and keep you warm. And what's gotten in the way? You weren't willing. You weren't willing to turn around and walk away from all these other things you were chasing and come to me and go under my wing and follow me. God is waiting for you, for you. He's waiting for you to repent, which simply means to turn around from whatever direction you're going in, whoever you're serving in life, whether it's yourself or somebody else or some appetite you have, turn around and go after him. Do you remember the prodigal son story? 90% of you do, in case anyone doesn't. A father had two sons. The younger one decides, you know what? I'd rather just get my inheritance now and then just go live my life. Uh, so he tells his dad, basically, I, I don't really want you to be dead, but let's pretend you are and I get my inheritance today. 
And the father gives him his inheritance and he wanders off and he squanders it all, just wastes it all, winds up just working in a pig pen, feeding pigs. He's so hungry he wants to eat their food and he says, finally decides, I'm gonna go home and ask my dad to let me back as a servant because there's no way he'd let me back as a son. And so he musters up the courage and he heads back. And as he's on the way, the father is on the roof watching which means that all this time he's been watching. And when he sees the son coming, he runs to his son and embraces him. And the son starts to get into his speech, Father, I've sinned and I, I know I can't be your son anymore. And the father just says, shh, be quiet. I don't even want to hear about that. You're not going to earn your forgiveness. I forgive you. He puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him, which means I re-inherit you. Then throws a giant party for him. That's the story of the prodigal son. Who did the waiting in that story that Jesus told? Who was the one waiting? The father was waiting. What was he waiting for? Was it for the son to come home and work off the debt he had earned and accumulated by taking his inheritance early and make up for his rudeness and insults? Or was it simply for his son to come home? And when that son came home, Trying to say, God, please forgive me, forgive me. You know, Dad, please, you know, just let me be a servant. He didn't want to hear it. He said, no, you're my son. And he takes him back in, gives him that new inheritance, and gives him that feast. Sometimes I wonder who the real prodigal is in that story. Do you know what the word prodigal means? A lot of us assume that prodigal means the person who's, you know, runs off and wastes uh, everything, wastes their money in, in bad living. That's not what prodigal means. Prodigal the word simply means someone who is extravagant on a scale that is wasteful. And certainly the younger son is extravagant on a wasteful scale here. He blows everything that he gets for an inheritance. But in the end, in the end of that story, the father's the one who gets accused of being prodigal. The father's the one who gets accused of being wasteful with his forgiveness and his generosity because he takes that son who had disrespected him and he extravagantly wastes his forgiveness on him and re-inherits him and pulls him back in. The father's the real prodigal in this story because he's so extravagant with that forgiveness to a son who'd been, in a way that others found so wasteful. And so what is God waiting for? Again, look in that mirror. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you so he can be wastefully extravagant on you and pour out his forgiveness on you and draw you in and make you his son and his daughter again. He wants to give you real, lasting joy. He's waiting for you to stop chasing after all that other stuff that just burns up in the end and is gone. He's waiting for you to acknowledge that he is God, not you, that he is your father, and he loves you. And look, it doesn't matter how empty you feel. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered. It doesn't matter how selfish you've been. It, none of it matters. What matters is that you turn around today and you go home you run home to him. That's all he wants to see is you turn around and then he will pour out that forgiveness and that grace and transform your life and give you life. That's what he's waiting for. He considers you precious. You are not a waste. He doesn't consider spending forgiveness on you wasteful at all. He wants to lavish it on you. God's waiting for you. God's waiting for you. He's also waiting for your husband. He's waiting for your wife, your children, that parent who doesn't know him, he's waiting for them. What's God waiting for? He's waiting for them. He's waiting for your friends. He's waiting for that person you sit and talk to on the bus every day or that neighbor 
That's who he's waiting for. And so when we say, oh, God, I wish God would just come back and put an end to everything today, God says, no, no. What about that person on the bus that you talked to? What about that neighbor? What about your husband, that, that spouse, that wife? What about your kids? What about that parent? What about that relative? What about that person who doesn't know me yet? I don't want them to miss out on the opportunity. I don't want to rob them of the chance to turn and follow me. I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting for them. And that takes us to Peter's second answer to the question. What's God waiting for? You. You to open your eyes and see how much he loves you and wants to lavish forgiveness on you if you would just turn and come to him. But then there's a second thing. And here, I want you to take that mirror again. And this time, I want you to hold it in your left hand with the white part facing you. A little bit different this time. Left hand with the white part facing you. And this is going to be so cool. This is going to blow your minds. Take, Take your right hand now and then just turn that mirror the other direction until you see just you. What do you see? You? Right, because the second answer is you too. What did you think was gonna happen? It's you, the second answer is also you. He's waiting for you if you don't know him, if you've been wandering away to to just wake up and come back, but he's also waiting for you and I to have the same heart he does for this world. He's waiting for you and I to care about what he cares about. And when you do, you'll understand why the waiting is so important and so essential and so key. And you'll stop saying, oh, when, 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 God. And instead, you'll start understanding why this waiting is so valuable and so key. Of course, God is concerned about putting away evil and suffering, of course. He desperately wants that. But there is something more important to him. There's something else that God is after. And I want you to listen again to Jesus and how Jesus explains it. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like God's kingdom, God's creation, this new creation. It is like a man who goes and sows seed in a field. But while everyone is sleeping, his enemy comes along. And in that field where the the man sowed his good seed, his enemy comes and sows weeds. He throws weed seeds down. And then when the weed sprouts up and begins to form heads, the weeds also come up. And he said, then the man's servants, they come to him and they say, sir, didn't didn't we put good seed in? What happened? Where did these weeds come from? And they'll tell them an enemy did this. An enemy did this. And they'll say, so, you know, why don't we just end it right now? Come on, snap your fingers. We'll go to work. We'll pull it all up now. Let's just put an end to it. And listen to what Jesus says in this parable. No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Do you see God's heart there in what Jesus said? Do you see why? Of course, God wants to put a stop to the trouble in life that you're facing and all the garbage that grows up inside of you too. Of course he does. He doesn't want those bad things growing up inside of you, but what he wants even more than to get the bad things out is to get the good stuff in, is to get this life going inside of you until you get to that point of maturity. And then he will deal with all of it in a final way. And what's true for you and me individually is true for the world. It's true for all of humanity. Of course, wants to deal with evil. Of course, wants to remove it from this world. But he doesn't want to lose a single one of those who will be his. Of course, God cares about putting a stop to the bad life. But right now, what he mostly cares about is that everyone has a chance to discover new life, good life in him. That's what he wants. And Jesus explained it this way. He said, God is waiting for the right moment 
when he can extricate evil and remove it and tie it up and burn it and be done with it, leaving only the good fruit that will be borne up through this time of waiting. And what God is waiting for is for you and I to have the same heart he does, to want to see that same thing, for you and me to care more about people not dying without knowing him than we care about our comfort or our escape from this world that is so troublesome. God's waiting for you and me to have his heart. You know, in that parable of the prodigal son, or really the prodigal father, there's a hook at the end. It's actually a little bittersweet at the end, isn't it? Because the older brother held a grudge against the younger brother and didn't go into the party, refused to go into the party. You remember that? Wouldn't go back in the house. Didn't want anything to do with it. He wouldn't go into that party because he was upset that his father would be so prodigal, so wasteful with his resources. And and instead of spending his resources to make him, the good son, comfortable, he was spending his resources on this disrespectful son. And Jesus was making a point there to the people of God he was talking to, to Israel. Because Israel was supposed to be concerned not with her own comfort, in this world, but with actually shining God into this world. But they had become consumed with just making themselves comfortable. And all they wanted from God was for God to make them comfortable in this world. And they'd forgotten their mission was to be like an older brother and go out into this world and help everyone, all nations, know what God is like and know God as their father. But they had forgotten that and turned it into just, no, God, spend your resources to make me comfortable. And so Jesus came to be the older brother. Jesus came to do what Adam and Eve had failed to do and then Israel had failed to do. He came because he didn't want to see anyone perish, but he wanted to see everyone turn around and run back to the Father. That's why Jesus came. And so everyone who follows Jesus, there is no choice. If you're following Jesus, that means that you're part of an all-out search to find every person who will turn their heart to God and call back brothers and sisters to him. That's what God is waiting for you to do. And Peter knew that wouldn't be easy. Peter knew that would be difficult. He knew that would be a challenge for us because there would be things that make life difficult. I mean, he's talking to them, and they know better than us because they lived in a world where the government, legally, was making their lives miserable, making it impossible for them to earn a living, care for their family. And pretty soon after this, they'd be living in a world where the government would legally authorize their murder for sport, where people could take Christians and make sport out of murdering them. That's the world they lived in. Peter knew it would not be easy to wait. How do you wait in the midst of that kind of struggle? And then, look, we suffer too. We don't suffer like that. But we, when will God return? Because we get uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable with our culture. We get uncomfortable with our government. We get uncomfortable with pandemics, right? We get uncomfortable with ourselves. When will God return and put me out of my misery and stop all this stuff? Maybe you've wondered that. Maybe you've wondered, God, when are you just gonna come back? I want, I'm ready. Maybe you know someone like the people that Peter described and Kelly read before, who mock you for trusting God, that God's actually gonna intervene and cares about this world and that, that Jesus will one day return and bring justice and new creation. And, and maybe if you examine your life closely, what you'd recognize is while you, know, you sit here and say, yeah, I put my hope in Jesus, I put my hope in Jesus, that your life actually demonstrates that you're not trusting in God but you've taken your life into your own hands and you're trying to make your own way. And that's why you're so full of anxiety and so full of 
bitterness and anger and fear because your life's really still in your own hands, not in God's. Waiting isn't easy, especially when life is hard. So don't miss out on the other two things that Peter says here in this passage. The answer what God's waiting for is you and me, waiting for us to turn and run to him, and then once we've done that, to adopt the same heart he has about the wait. But then don't forget these two things Peter says that point to this. Regardless of how long the wait is, justice is coming. Look at verse five again. It reminds us there are people who, you know, will mock at this whole idea and they'll say, oh, it's never gonna change. I'll never come back. He says, they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What, what's his point there? God is the one with the power. Not whatever government you live under at the time when you read this, whether it's them then or us now. The one with the power is God. That's his point. He's the one from the beginning. He was there. He created it all. And you weren't there at the beginning, but you believe in the beginning, right? There had to have been a beginning. And so maybe you don't see the end, but believe it, there's going to be an end when he will bring about justice. And then look at what he says in verse 10. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Everyone gets caught up on the destruction language in those verses and scared about all that. And they miss the point of it all, what Peter's saying, what Peter's trying to drive to are the very last two words of that verse, laid bare. What he's basically saying is God who has all the power is going to strip away all of the facade, strip away all of the lies, and everything will be laid bare. Everything will be exposed. Everything will be known. The truth will be known. Everything will be known. Lies will be seen for what they are, and there will be justice. And that means a lot to people who are living under injustice. That would have meant a lot to them. Whenever someone is dealing with injustice, their greatest hope is that the truth will come out, that truth will be revealed, that lies will be exposed, and their greatest hope, if they know that it, that day is about to come, that the truth is about to be seen, and they're gonna be vindicated, like, how do you feel the day before that? You feel excited and joyful, and you're anticipating it, and you're so relieved because you know that day is coming when the truth will be known and you will be vindicated. Our world is in a constant battle between those seeking the truth and those trying to cover it up. But no matter what happens to us in this life, as we wait, we know that the day will come when the truth will be laid bare and everyone will see what's true about God, what's true about us. All the lies will be wiped away and it will all just be clear. That's the day we hope for. That's the day we long for and we can trust him for that day that we will find justice in him. So that in mind, we wait for God's justice, with God's justice in mind. But then he makes this other comment in verse eight. A lot of people quote this verse. It says, especially, my wife likes to quote this when she's late and I'm waiting for her. I don't know why, but she says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. You know, some people have tried to use that verse as a math formula. It's like, okay, so if a day is a thousand years with God and it's been about 2,000-ish years since Jesus resurrected. So if I do the math on that, it's 730,000 days, which means 730,000 years. And then that, and they try to extrapolate. So what is this gonna mean about when Jesus comes back? And, and they miss the whole point of what, what the verse is saying. Look at it again. A day is like a 1,000 years. Okay. And a 1,000 years is like a day. 
They cancel each other out. What's Peter's point then? His point is that God is outside of time. You and I are bound inside of time. In fact, I could mess with your brains and try and tell you to try and imagine not being bound by time, but most of you are wondering if we're gonna get out of here by noon, right? God is outside of time. So when we talk about God's timing as though that's a thing, it's not really. It's a thing to us because we live inside of time. God doesn't live inside of time. And Peter's point is that it isn't possible to figure out what time our timeless God will bring about justice. And God isn't so worried about the time. You know, that's one thing about, I mean, I'm so grateful that I've gotten to travel a little bit in my life and go to different cultures where I'm the guest and don't have control of anything. You know, we, we have our services, we have our schedules here. I'm a very time-oriented person. I usually can tell you what time it is within five minutes. Um, I'll set things to go on the microwave and I'll walk back into the kitchen usually about 10 seconds, within 10 seconds of it going off. I am just so time-based in my mind. Some of you are like that. Others of you are not. One thing I've seen in going to other cultures, like especially with church, here church starts at 11 o'clock. You may not be sitting here Church starts at 11 o'clock. You go there, church doesn't start because it's 11 o'clock or a certain time on a clock. Church starts when everyone's there. And that's really interesting. That's probably much better in terms of relationship and people. What does God care about? Is he worrying about he's got a set time, this has to happen? Or is he set on an eternity and a moment where the harvest is ready and he's going to move? God's not worried about time. God's worried about people. God will know when that time is, when the harvest is ripe, not because of a clock or a calendar, but because of things that only God understands. Martin Luther is famous for having said, I have two days on my calendar, today and that day, the day when God makes all things new and brings justice and new creation. Today and that day. I live today not for tomorrow or for next year. I live it for that day because that helps me focus on my priorities and what's really important. Right? I live it for that day when justice will be known, everything will be laid bare, including all the things I've done. I live for that day. That helps me stay focused on what I need to do today. When I live for that day, I'm focused on what really matters, that as many people as possible turn and find this life that God offers, that they run back to him and become his sons and daughters. That's what's most important, that they're there to embrace God's justice in the end instead of having to suffer God's justice in the end. That's what I look forward to. You worship team, would you come back? Until that time, we wait with God's justice in mind and we wait knowing God's time is unknowable. And so we wait knowing he waited for us and now we wait with his heart. This is what Christmas is about. It's about waiting. It's about waiting. It's about the waiting that led up to Jesus, and now it's about the waiting for Jesus' return. And here in the middle, God is waiting. He's waiting, first of all, for you. He's waiting for you to come home this Christmas. If anybody here has not come home to Jesus, you have been wandering and living your own life, doing your own thing. Whether you're watching from home or listening some other time, God is waiting for you. What do you need to turn around from and run away from today so that you can run home to him? Do it. He's waiting for you. Not to get your life, you're not gonna get your life together. Just give it to him. Let him repair and rebuild.
He's the only one who has power to do it. He's waiting for you. And then he's waiting for you to invite someone else home this Christmas. God's waiting for you and me to invite somebody else home this Christmas. Who can you be a good older brother or older sister to this Christmas? Where you go looking and you find and you bring them home to uncover and discover God's lavish, extravagant, wasteful forgiveness. Who can you be a good brother, a good sister to this year?